Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Aviation Avenue podcast. Folks, I'm happy to be back with you recording our another episode um, of our podcast. So, everybody, we hope you're all doing well. I had a nice uh, weekend. I'll tell you guys about it in a second with our episode. So, I took the week off last week in honor of the uh, Halloween holiday. We hope you guys enjoyed that, and I hope you guys had a nice, scary, spooky day. I was dressed up as Maverick from Top Gun. It was a nice Halloween for me. I just dressed up. I didn't go trick-or-treating, but I just sat down and passed out some candy and played some music i was gonna play danger zone but changed my mind it's halloween so everybody yesterday i was down at the planes of fame live demo slash hangar talk featuring the f8f bearcat that was a really fun live demo because it featured a model contest the planes of fame's ed maloney scale modeling contest now i built a model with my dad a p61 black widow and a fuel truck that was pretending to fill it up like a little diorama during world war ii days and it was really fun uh to see all the other models and all the other competitors um uh, go there and do their work and modeling and things like that i ended up getting third which there was only two in my division there was a i think there was a there was a stuka that ended up getting first and second so we ended up getting third which was kind of it was all right but i had a lot of fun doing it and and i have some photos of the p61 on my insta my two accounts on instagram or instagram sorry and then yeah thank you to the plains of fame air museum for keeping history alive and putting on this wonderful event uh more details to come soon and uh yeah so everybody today we're going to be talking about the f-102 delta dagger now everybody this is a one of the century series aircraft used in the vietnam war and uh, our special guest Fred Bell is back for a long another yet another appearance. He's going to be discussing this uh, aircraft with you all today, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. And we'll talk to you on the backhand. We hope you enjoy. Well, hello there, and welcome to another edition of Warbird Wednesday. My name is Fred Bell. I am the vice chairman of the Palm Springs Air Museum. You know, after a couple of weeks, I was being led into to believe that Greg was getting a little bit more sedate with the headgear that he was uh, picking for me. The bad thing is for me is I actually verbalized that. So Greg obviously went to the extreme. That's the deal. I agreed, you know, if we do this, I wear the headgear. And obviously today Greg has just gone a little bit more over the top. And although it is kind of... Uh, poetic in some ways and that we're going to go back to the Century Series fighters and with the weight and the size of these some things you, know, you could argue you know when pigs fly they are so bloody heavy and big but there's a little bit more animation for you so I am going to remove this as these things have a really bad design feature in that they kind of cut off the circulation of my head but there we go oh another perfect catch by Mr. Kenny so today we are talking about the Deuce, the F-102, a pure interceptor fighter made by Convair. It was um, really kind of, you want to think about this airplane, we've talked about getting faster and faster and faster, going through the speed of sound, 
how the airplanes would work in the speed of sound. This is the epitome of about that mid-1950s Air Force or, or military industrial complex design thinking. Very fast. We're not going to dogfight anymore. We're going to go attack guys with missiles, which we're going to talk about that. And the airplane isn't going to have to maneuver very much because we're going to completely rely on technology. What we found out with that was, Mr. Kenny, it just did not work. Now, Greg is my rapsodic assistant today. Again, a word that he, not only did he go after the really exotic headgear, but we're getting back into the kind of multiple syllable words here, rhapsodic. So hopefully I'm not uh, butchering that too much. Good to get a thumbs up from Greg. So the 102 came out of a uh, request from the Air Force in the late 40s, and three manufacturers looked at it for a pure interceptor fighter. Convair kind of came out on top on that, and that was... They were going to move into, remember, we're going up into uh, J-57 range engine and higher, and now we're starting to get uh, jet engines that are afterburning. And the thought process is, remember, they don't really understand um, <clears throat> all of the elements that are going on aerodynamically, but the thought is that the more thrust you put out the back of that airplane, the faster it's going to go. And they kept pushing and pushing and pushing uh, further further into that sound barrier. Now, what happened was the F-102 in its original design was supposed to be supersonic. I'm going to pick this one up. There we have the plan view. I'm going to talk about the uh, transonic uh, area rule here in a second, but I'm going to go back to a familiar well, Greg, a familiar well, and that is we're going to go back to Who's our favorite suspect? We talk about a lot in these early jets. The Germans. Auto Frenzy had been doing a lot of work with Junkers and uh, in, uh, in wind tunnel testing, high-speed wind tunnel testing in the mid-war uh, period, like 1943 to 1945. He had discovered that if you played with the shape of the fuselage and the distance of the wings on the Delta, that you could get he could get his models going much faster, theoretically. And that was because the Germans were looking for that mythical weapon that was going to allow them to uh, change their fortune in the air in Europe because that bombardment was just horrendous for them. They were losing the war, and they needed to get on top of uh, uh, the air superiority. The reality was they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the time, uh, and they didn't really have the men at that point in the war to be able to do that, but they were grasping at straws. So Otto decided when he was working for Junkers, he was going to do uh, the work on this trans, um, this transonic area rule. Now, uh, he worked in two areas that Greg can come up with. One was the uh, HS-135, and the other one was the P. I'm going to screw this up, but I believe it is 1112 the P-112 or the P-112. There's a lot of ones in there, Greg. Just figure it out. But you can throw up the vision of the airplane. But but those were the airplanes that they, they were working on. Um, and really, you're going to say now, uh, the Whitcomb rule or the transonic area rule will... A dramatic new discovery in aircraft design. The pinched waist, 
greatest aviation advance since man broke the sound barrier. Presented by Air Force Secretary Quarles, the Exceptional Service Award honors its youthful designer, Richard Whitcomb. His remarkable discovery has increased jet plane speeds by 25%, a step up of 150 to 200 miles an hour in supersonic aircraft. Vice President Nixon congratulates the recipient, already at 34, one of aviation's leading research scientists. All right, supersonic, uh, uh, supersonic airplanes for dummies, 101. Basically, the thought process was you put as much thrust out of that air, the back of that airplane as possible, you push it forward, and that's going to make the airplane go faster and faster, and all, the real, all you really need to do is get more and more powerful engines, like rockets, same thing, right? Well, the reality of the situation was, is we've talked before, if you take your hand in a pool and you move your hand through a pool in water, you can feel the resistance. Well, air is no difference. It's just different density, right? It's different density than water. What happens is you build up, and Greg can throw some graphics on this. I'm not going to go too deep into this. I could spend a lot of time on this one. But you build up these, the resistance and these sonic shock waves over the front of the airplane. And what ends up happening is the faster you go, the bigger those shock waves get. Now, there's, there's two challenges there. One is those shock waves can break up the airplane. And, and a lot of times they, well, they require, really, let's, let's go three challenges. Greg, I'm, I'm getting down into geek land here. But three challenges. They, you can break up the airplane. You get resistance, which actually pushes against the airplane to getting, you know, as it's going through the speed of sound. And then the other problem is control. It, you know, we've talked about in some of those uh, uh, World War II fighters, uh, control lock, because they get going so fast that they can't, they can't get a deflection in the airflow, either the rudder or the either the vertical or the horizontal. They and they, they just lose control of the airplane. The airplane goes into uh, either a fatal dive uh, or becomes uncontrollable or spins. Remember, we talked about the airplane spinning out of control when we talked about the Century Series fighters uh, with some of those stalls. So I'm sorry, with the F-100 with some of those stalls. But this issue is a little bit different. So. The original F-102s that flew in the early 1950s, let's say 1954, 1956, the original aircraft, I believe, flew in 1954. They got nine flights on it, and it crashed. So then they came back with another one. They put that one in the air. But what they realized early on was the spec performance on the airplane, the specified performance on the airplane was nowhere near what it needed to be. Top speed on the airplane was um, at the end of the day about 825 miles an hour. But they had a lot of problems with the initial design, the, the X-plane design on this, of getting through the sound barrier. That is where the area rule comes into effect. So what they realized, and, and Greg can probably get a graphic that shows it a little bit different or a little bit better than what I'm doing, but thick fuselage here, you taper the fuselage right here so that changes the shock wave over the airplane and then you flare it out there which changes again the airflow of the airplane it actually smooths the aircraft through the sound barrier it smooths it out so it lowers the resistance this transonic area rule is still around greg there's a uh, uh, a civilian airliner that that has it which is the uh, 747 
the 300, you know, the little hump on the back of the, of the 747, right? They actually extended the hump on the 300, which had the same effect. It changed the shockwave over the fuselage. It made the airplane, they got a few more people in it, which is always good for airlines, unless you're in like COVID land right now, which we don't want to do that. But in airliner, you want to get more people, so they were able to get more people in it. They also, it made the airplane a little bit faster. So that's kind of cool. So it, that rule, good old uh, autos rule, uh, stands to this day, or the Wickham rule. And so uh, what they did, when they did the redesign, then they got the airplane to the point where they felt it was, uh, it had a good performance band. It would get up to that 825 mile an hour that we talked about. Um, it had a, it was designed for one role, and that was, it was a fighter interceptor designed to go after, and again, I'm going to have fun with this one, the Tupolev, the 95. The Tupolev 95 was the equivalent to, let's say, a B-36 or a B-52. It was a Russian nuclear bomber, and remember, at that time in the Cold War, both sides were figuring out new and creative ways to blow each other up. So, basically... They were, they were coming up with more and more ways to deliver nukes. Both sides were trying to figure out how to counter the various points on the nuclear, what they call the nuclear triad, Greg, the nuclear triad, which was land-based, sea-based, and air-based. And the chances are that the enemy would strike us from the north. On the other hand, however small the threat, our defense is just as quick to react. United States Air Defense Command F-102s, standing by on five-minute alert, scramble to investigate an unknown aircraft. So the, the Air Force was trying to negate the Russians' uh, ability to drop nukes. Now remember, we didn't have, there were some early cruise missiles at that time and some stuff like that, but... If you're going to go for a nuke in the 50s and you're going to drop it on either the Russians or on us, you're going to have to fly it in, pretty much. That was the way you're going to do it. And so getting at those big bombers was, was critically important. So this aircraft, it didn't have something. No gun. They experimented with a ground attack version of this redesign on this airplane. For some reason, have you noticed that in the entire series when we talk about all these airplanes, they experimented with a ground attack version, Greg. So, you know, they're always working on some sort of uh, cast, some sort of close air support, but they put a Gatling gun on it and they didn't like it, so they didn't go forward with it. So this thing had, and I'm not sure if, Greg, you get a shot of this, but this had a really cool argument. Uh, uh, argument. That's a good one. Well, it was an argument if you were on the other side. It was just a heated argument because they were trying to blow you up. But uh, very cool armament. This had Falcon missiles. Now, the cool thing about these is um, we, we can make just about anything here. We actually made these, if you can believe that, Craig. These are not uh, real Falcon missiles. But it had these high-speed doors, and this is called a trapeze. And the missiles would come out. It had a used fire control system in it. And it would lock onto those bombers, and it would fire these Falcon missiles at the uh, at those Tupolev bombers or whatever target it had locked onto. Now, these could be um, conventionally armed, so they could have a conventional warhead. A lot of these missiles, whether they're SAM surface-to-air missiles or they're um, aircraft-based in the warhead, 
they had an explosive and they would have ball bearings, the equivalent of what were ball bearings or something that would fragment and spray the target. Some of them, uh, and that's called a proximity fuse, some of them could actually impact the hull, but it really wasn't until the Sidewinder series of missiles, the AIM series of missiles, that um, uh, those infrared, those homing missiles uh, on heat that you were getting into that. So a lot of the radar guided stuff would get close and then detonate, not all of it, but most of it, and then spray the target with some sort of shrapnel, typically like a ball bearing. And the idea was you just put enough holes in it, you gotta hit something that's important and the airplane blows up or stops doing what it's gonna do. But, um, so this, these opened up and you could fire these missiles at the target, but it had no gun. Now the other thing about it was this was the epitome of the um, thinking at the time. Not really great visibility. Not great, really great visibility. And the other thing was, and I've talked to, I don't know that I've ever talked to a 102 pilot. I have talked to a 106 pilot, and there were two things that he told me about the airplane, and it's probably the epitome of Century Series. A lot of smoke coming out of that airplane, so you could see this with that engine. Smoke which most of the new newer airplane, they have smokeless engines because what does the smoke do, Greg? It tells people where you are, right? Whether it's the in the air or on the ground, they know where to shoot at you. The other thing was with this delta wing, when it turns, guess what? It turns like a frying pan. So it was not incredibly maneuver maneuverable. Now, you 106 drivers or you 102 drivers, somebody can argue with me, but uh, the guys that I've talked to that flew these airplanes... They, they, especially the 106, they really loved the 106, but its ability to turn and a turning fight, which is a hallmark of, let's say, the F-15 upward, uh, that highly maneuverable airplane was not a hallmark of this. This was get in, get a lock on, have your weapons bay doors open up, and you zap the guy with a missile. And uh, I use the term zap because you may be using a uh, nuclear warhead, which we haven't talked about there, right? We talked about those missiles. If, you know, uh, when they say close only counts in um, horseshoes and hand grenades, it also counts when you have a nuclear-tipped uh, anti-aircraft missile and that you don't necessarily have to get very close. Now, they, they nuclear-tipped not only these Falcons, these missiles here, but another thing, Greg, uh, nuclear torpedoes. Nuclear torpedoes and depth charges. Remember to try to negate that triad. You want to go after the uh, the uh, enemy's uh, ballistic missile submarines, and they would go after those uh, them with nukes. But they did that in the air as well. Now this aircraft um, had a pretty good range, as I said, decent speed. A thousand of them were built. Um, they uh, they pretty much faded into history with us up into about um, the mid-1970s, they were gone. By the, uh, by the um, early 1980s, they were all gone, with the exception of, even in foreign service, with the exception of drones. They used these a lot in drone service, and I'm going to talk about this particular airplane in a minute because it actually has some history with that. But they, they were used as drones uh, in foreign service. They were used with the Turkish Air Force and the Royal Hellenic Air Force. Air Force. 
version the trainer of this aircraft was tandem there were two seats in it as opposed to a single seat this particular aircraft we have an exhibit here called the uh, presidential aviation exhibit and greg can throw up some pictures of this but we basically have a uh, avenger and we've talked about that in another segment which is in george bush senior colors and then this aircraft is in texas air national guard colors with uh, his son, uh, George Bush Jr. So that is uh, the Presidential Aviation Exhibit. Um, this airplane, and Greg, it's hard to give you an idea on the scale of this airplane, but it is big. It is really big. And when you look at it, and, and Greg may have some video of this going in the hangar when we just finished, so you get the size of the height of that tail. When we actually designed the miles hangar, which this airplane is in, we actually increased the height because of the tail. The other thing, though, that size is a disadvantage. Uh, the aircraft did have some uh, activity in air combat, and guess what, Greg? One of them was actually shot down in North Vietnam by a MiG-21, if you can believe that. And what ended up happening is the missile stuck in the airplane and didn't detonate, the pilot called that he had an airplane or missile stuck in his airplane. He could see it, and the, air, the missile blew up, and the pilot was killed. But the airplane was lost. That's the only combat loss for this airplane. But this particular aircraft is when they came in delivery of when they came back, and they were in the Texas Air National Guard. Now, they did go to drones. This particular airplane went to AMARG. It went over to the Boneyard and um, was actually outfitted as a drone. And then when the drones were retired, it went uh, over into the south, and it was going to be used for a museum. And what ended up happening was it sat in those jigs for about, shipping jigs for about 30 years. The museum never happened, and a forest grew up around this airplane. And it rotted out of the, the shipping jigs. Greg can put a bunch of pictures in this. And... Um, uh, we got this aircraft on loan from the United States Air Force, which we thank them very much. And there are not a lot of F-102s sitting around anymore. And we actually rebuilt it to the point of reskinning it. We rebuilt the tail on the airplane. We rebuilt the elevrons. And we rebuilt the, uh, the rudder on the airplane. That's all new stuff as well as the missiles and everything else. So we actually uh, put this airplane back together. So I'm going to set this down. This would make like a, you can see why they named it the Delta Dart. I'll teach you to make me wear a flapping pig, Greg. I'm going to throw the airplane at you. We're going to go over here, and we are going to get to my stage two, which is uh, today is a Stewart's product. Stewart's is not a sponsor of the program. Uh, since 1924, smooth lime taste. Hmm, that's intriguing. Greg, you follow that, made with real cane sugar. Have you ever noticed that most of the stuff, it's a marketing tool, with the exception of that tea that you gave me that almost poisoned me and I almost fell over a few weeks ago. This is a key lime soda, uh, 180 calories, all the usual suspects. It does have a sell-by date of, I can't even figure out what that is, Greg. So 
This could be dangerous. Now, today, what we're going to do, we're going to open it up. And we, by the way, I have a obscure product placement holdover. <laughs> the, the bottle opener from the C119 last week. No, it's still not sticking. Here, we're going to go over here. Is this, I'm not sure this... I'm not sure this thing sticks to anything, Greg. You, you're, there's got to be some... I know there's a lot of aluminum in this airplane. Maybe over here. Let's see. No, it is not sticking to anything, Greg. So I want a proof on this. I'm going to uh, demand proof. So what I want to do today is I want to salute... It doesn't matter where you were. If you were involved in the Cold War, uh, those were tough times. And people who were sitting on the ready reserve line or the ready flight line for these airplanes, or whether you're in a submarine or you're on a ship, uh, or you were in the uh, uh, worried about the Fulda Gap in uh, Germany uh, and the, the Russians invading on the ground, those were very, very scary times. So to all of the Cold Warriors, no matter what service you were in, I salute you. You know, Greg, you were hitting it home with pure cane sugar. This is another good one. Greg looks very happy. He's extremely pleased. Mm. All right, Greg, I, I give you props for that one. That's good. You, you have failed me miserably on the magnet, but, but, the, uh, but the drink works today. We are going to go back to a familiar suspect here, and that is we are going to go back to our uh, our product placement, our gratuitous product placement, is the Century Series Fighter shirt. As I've told you, this will make you 15 miles an hour faster. You will amaze your friends. You will become hits. The hit as parties. My understand is that you can actually patch a, a boat with this shirt. You know, it's like Flex Seal, right? Sure. So Greg goes, oh, yeah. But, uh, no, it will not do any of that. But it is a very nice shirt. Um, I actually have one of these. I've worn it before. And it has all the Century Series fighters. Now, we don't normally call the ball, so to speak, on uh, what we're going to do. But just a little bit of a hint, we're probably going to do the F-106 here pretty soon. So you're going to see this shirt again uh, at some point. But we have, a, we have a beautiful 106 in the collection. And the other thing that we have to talk about, and Greg can get a shot of this and show you the maybe before and after shots of the cockpit, uh, but the restoration department, they're currently working on the F-117 and that A-7, but they just did a fantastic job. So I'm going to do another salute today to our restoration department. Mm -mm. I like this one, Greg. You did a good job. So this is the uh, sum up on the F-102. It is a, uh, a good fighter for its time based on the... Um, of a series of assumptions as with everything the world changed in the 60s and the assumptions that this was based on to counter the threat that this airplane was built for no longer existed and aircraft moved on but no question that with the aircraft design the fuselage design and the delta wing this was a game changer so this is an important airplane an important milestone airplane and if you get an opportunity, I want you to come in and check this one out at the museum. You know what was really exciting, Greg, is we actually get people come in and go, yeah, you're that weird guy that wears the hats now. We, I actually have that occasionally. It, it does happen. So we want you to come over and, uh, and look at this airplane. The doors are open. The airplane will be sitting outside. We are an open-air museum presently. So come on over and check it out. 
Now, the other thing I want you to do is I want you to go out to YouTube and I want you to hit that uh, like button on the video. Give us that thumbs up. Hit the subscribe button. Go over to Facebook. Like us on Facebook. This airplane is the epitome of why we need your donations for restoration. This thing was literally completely reskinned and rebuilt, and that is what we take your donations. We have 325 uh, volunteers. We're primarily a volunteer-based museum, and your donations help us make these airplanes possible. So I want to thank you again for joining us today. My name is Fred Bell. Come back and see us again for another episode next week of Warbird Wednesday. Have a great day. Okay, everybody, that was our episode on the F-102 Delta Dagger. We hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you to Fred Bell for coming on and discussing this wonderful Century Series aircraft here on episode 102. And uh, everybody, thank you all for watching. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Aviation Avenue Pod. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Aviation Avenue. Uh, make sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash Podcast. Um, check out my website, podpage.com dash aviation avenue podcast. Um, and then also make sure to email me if you guys have any questions at stuntplanepodcastfanmail at gmail.com. And we will see you guys next week here on the podcast. So long for now, everyone. <laughs>